Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again, the 2022 edition. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy and, New Year. And uh, I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and that is the dulcet tones off from the injured reserve list. <laughs> yes, climbing um, out of the pit that was COVID. Don Spamalden. <laughs> so for those listening, Don has had the bout. She's had a bout with uh, the COVID bug, and she is back. And in action. So we are most thankful. Let's give applause for that. <laughs> and we have applause because we have our returning band member, comrade in arms. Inspiration. inspiration. Exactly. Absolutely. Yay. Vicki Noble. Woo-hoo. Hi, Vicki. Hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> I'm going to get out of the way because we're going to be talking Priestess to Bride, which is a fantastic essay that Vicky wrote. And we're going to be talking about the just sort of the evolution of marriage rituals and where they come from and the matriarchal aspects of them that have been clouded. And I think no better way uh, to begin than to have Vicky has a, an introduction for us about her essay and about this topic. And so I'm just going to step off to the side. Take it away. Vicky, take it away. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> well, I, I wanted to say that I'm part of that generation of radical young American women who were who created, basically, the women's liberation movement in the 1970s, one of whose central mottos was smash the nuclear family. So feminism has been blamed, of course, for this by the right wing uh, who hold us responsible for the disintegration of marriage in America as divorce rates rose to 50% in our nation. And for a while, at least, I heard 75% in California, where I live. Technically, I think, honestly, the blame has to go to the two outer planets, Uranus and Pluto that made a conjunction during the 1960s that catalyzed all kinds of revolutionary breakthroughs all around the world, including the women's movement. I'm not sorry at all about our declining rates of marriage. I consider marriage a failed social form. I remember reading in the 1960s, years before my feminist awakening, in fact, I was living as a Uh, an Air Force officer's wife in base housing uh, on an Air Force base in Pease, New Hampshire. I remember reading The Future of Marriage, Jessie Bernard. She was a sociologist, and she outlined the ways that marriage seemed to be working for men in terms of promoting and sustaining their overall health and longevity, and not for women whose descent into mental and physical illness after marriage could be statistically tracked. Today, more women than ever are staying single and for longer periods, which I think suggests that although we're dealing with lots of obstacles in our lives, we have learned something from experience. And a book that I read a few years ago about this phenomenon that I liked very much was Rebecca Traster's book, All the Single Women. Do either of you remember seeing that book? I don't remember that book, but I do know the author, and uh, yeah, I like her work. Same. Yeah, I, I know the author as well. Sure, well, it was very fresh and interesting. Um, so today, what I'm hoping to share with our listeners is, is from this essay I wrote as a result of the research I was doing into bronze and iron age shaman women for my 2003 book, The Double Goddess, that we've talked about in here. Yes. The essay I wrote, From Priestess to Bride, Marriage as a Colonizing Process in Patriarchal Conquest, 
appeared in Christina Biaggi's 2006 anthology, The Rule of Mars, Readings on the Origins, History, and Impact of Patriarchy. Uh, I had been invited earlier to present my research in uh, 2001 as a keynote address for Mary B. Kelly's upstate New York conference called Amazons and Their Sisters, which featured an ethnographer, Valentina Elem, from the Shuvash people of Russia's Ural Mountains, who believed themselves to be descended from Amazons. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really interesting. I, I, you know, I had gone on that trip up the Volga and all the way to to Ufa in the Urals, but I hadn't met the Shuvash people until this conference that Mary Kelly had had. Mary Kelly is the uh, goddess embroideries uh, expert. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, Yeah, you mentioned her before. Yeah, Yeah, her books are just fabulous. Um, Anyway, this this woman from the Shuvash culture, Valentina, brought a helmet-shaped traditional bridal headdress from her culture to that conference. And and we all had a great time uh, taking turns trying on the costume (laughs) and the and the helmet. <laughs> Somewhere I have pictures. I'll try to find them. <laughs> nice. <laughs> In a blinding epiphany, I suddenly understood what all the fuss was about with women, about weddings and the office of the bride, not only in our culture, but around the world. The fancy artifacts from burials of high status shaman women all across Eurasia looked just like much of the traditional paraphernalia worn by contemporary brides around the world. And that was a focus of, of Mary Kelly's. Um, I was ho-hum about it, you know, until I realized, oh, shock, these are the same headdresses. That's what we're looking at when we look at these traditional brides all over the world. And so I wrote this piece in, in 2006 uh, in order to investigate that a little bit and do some uh, some and and find some evidence, you know, to support my my sense that uh, it was really uh, first the priestesses who were taken uh, in what they called intermarriage. They always use that word, you know. It's a very pleasant uh, euphemism yes. for abduction and rape and so on. So I started this article, uh, this essay, um, with songs from one from 1960. Do you remember uh, going to the chapel? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then I did a Carly Simon uh, song from 1976, so about, six, about a decade later. Um, no one will remember this, I think, but and I'll just say the the words because it was so chilling at the moment you say we can keep our love alive babe mm. all i know is what i see couples cling and claw oh, and you drown in love's debris <laughs> thank you yeah yeah i love that song oh my god it is it's it's, it's chilling, so it? dark yeah, yeah. Yeah, you say we'll soar like two birds through the clouds, but soon you'll cage me on your shelf. I'll never learn to be just me first by myself. But you say it's time we move in together. Come on, sing it, Don. And raise a family of our own, you and me. Well, that's the way I've always heard it should be. You want to marry me? We'll marry. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what we, you know, we encourage our daughters and granddaughters now to just at least wait, at least don't do it when I did it at 19. Right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Sean, you were interested uh, to talk about the um, the last paragraph here when I yeah, I talked about Melissa yeah. Etheridge and her her second bride. 
I'll just read because I think it's it, it does kind of give a give a framework for you know. So what is this episode about? And and I I, I what I find very interesting about the essay, I'm really provocative. And you say even in contemporary America, and I'll change pronouns because you're talking about women's experience. So I'll make it so it's clear for everyone. Even in contemporary America at this time in history, when a woman puts on that long white dress and veil and walks down the aisle. It must unleash a flood of feeling that links her back to the time when women were standing in for the goddess. And I thought that was a great just opening line. And then you talk about Melissa Average. If you want me to read that, I'll go. Yeah, go ahead. Because they were on the cover, I think, of Time magazine or something. It says, in this context, I regard, this is Vicky talking, a recent photo of rock star Melissa Etheridge with her second bride as an especially glorious and paradoxical moment. Both brides are dressed in requisite white, and each is radiant and glowing as they avail themselves of the window of opportunity provided by California's willingness to break laws that attempt to protect the institution of marriage from the participa participation of gays and lesbians, along with the f other 4,000 members of their transgressive tribe, they laid claim to their ancient right to wear the paraphernalia of the Amazons, those ancient archetypal women who had no husbands. Great. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll elaborate on that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Could, yeah. could you talk a little bit about that early, those, and we'll talk about the Amazons, of course, because there are, 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 Shining yeah. uh, light for us, yeah. What would yes. you call it, Don? Our heart's Certainly blood. Yes. Yeah, yeah, our heart's blood of everything here. Yeah. But uh, could you talk a little bit, Vicky, about because in the essay you talk about the early matriarchies, what they were like, and then this clash. You know, we've obviously talked about this a lot on the podcast, but yeah, this is our this favorite subject specifically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, and it, you know, because it's like we all say, it's still there. I yeah. I can see it in TV shows I'm watching. It's just mm -hmm. I can see it in commercials. That clash is there. Uh huh. You know, right. The, the it is. Fear, it's alive you know, and well. You use the phrase colonization, and I was saying to you before we started how I see a very clear sexual colonialism that happens in the psyche. American entertainment. It's just, you know, crazy sometimes when I'm looking at it. So why don't you yeah, start us off about what, what the history of this is? Well, uh, just to just to take off from where you're talking, I think uh, it's interesting that in the early 1970s, I uh, co-authored a little self-help book, uh, a little magazine kind of for uh, self-help groups. And I asked Robin Morgan to write the introduction, which she did. And she equated, in that introduction, she equated the takeover of women's bodies with the more general colonization process described by the world authority on the subject, France Fanon, forced to adopt the oppressor's standards, values, and identification, the colonized naturally become alienated from their own values, their own land, which in the particular case of women happens to be our very bodies. Mm. Can, I, can I throw something in there? Let's, uh, I want to play around with the cultural notions we have of and, and the cultural pushback you might get. I mean, for example, I, I have a very positive thought about marriage, but when you talk about the colonization aspect of it, what do you say about the, the marriage industry that we've seen uh, I think Don and you and I may have talked about this, that has cropped up certainly over the last 20 years. They call them bridezillas and things of that Say sort. Say yes to the dress. Wow. <laughs> yeah. you know, what? I don't know a lot about that, but I read recently about Kerala, you know, which was uh, until very recently, until the last 50 years, a matriarchal part of India, still, still in the 20th century. And I just read uh, just an icky thing about brides and their dresses and the whole thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars spent by each bride and the choreographing of dances, kind of like Bollywood, and just like it's just gone over the top. And this was a matriarchal culture really until very recently, partly from the nationalism that is so prevalent in India right now, and partly from the, uh, from the Christianization that happened. But this bride was Muslim, so who knows? Um, 
but they were uh it was extraordinary because they used to be it used to be sacred it wasn't long ago it was sacred and also i had a this is really a side of sideline but um i had a master's student when we were doing the women's spirituality program in palo alto uh she came from kerala and she came into our program in women's spirituality to get a master's degree and she didn't know anything really about her matriarchal background, which was yeah. astounding. Um, and she took my matriarchy studies class and she took other classes that we were doing uh, in the school. And and she, you know, she got awakened and was very, uh, very effective in her work. She, she did her thesis by going back to India and interviewing three generations of Kerala women, which is the exact time in which it has gone from uh, matriarchy to a more patriarchal structure. Wow. Uh, and she interviewed the grandmothers, as she called them, the older women, whose uh, lives were reflected all the things we've read and learned about the different matriarchal cultures, um, where there's egalitarianism and the women uh, stay in their home territory and the men join them there if, if there's marriage at all. Anyway, she interviewed then her mother, the next generation, and then, her, and then uh, herself and I think uh, other women in her generation. And the changes that happened in the ritual life and what was important to the women in their lives uh, over that three generations was just shocking, you know, because for the grandmothers, the most important, the very central ritual of their lives and the most important sort of religious aspect was the menarch, the the coming on of the menstrual cycle right. and, and the way that the girl was basically presented into the culture at that time as, as a woman. And, um, and how her life unfolded from that. And then for, for her mother's generation, that was much less important. They didn't make such a big fuss about the menarch ritual in the communities. They, uh, it was more about the marriage. Right. And right. so that was a huge change. And by the time of, uh, of my students uh, coming of age, they didn't even do a menarch ritual. Yeah. At all. You know, she was a modern Indian woman. Yeah. Um, so anyway, when we, she, when we look at the uh, the only rituals that, you know, that celebrate passages in a woman's life other than, you know, a birthday or something like that is, uh-huh. uh, the, you know, the, the bridal shower and the baby shower. And the pressure's on, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, from the time you're a little girl, what are you going to be when you grow up? They ask boys and what, are, you know, who are you going to marry? Right. They ask girls. It's really pathetic. I think it's it's interesting to me because again, I, I come from a framework where I mean, my view and like this, obviously, I'm coming from male framework. My view of marriage is going to be positive. It's mine as positive. But what I noticed myself personally is you talk about the time frame that was happening in that particular region of India, and I noticed in a time frame of probably about the start of this century, where I noticed that marriage has become something different than. What I looked at, you know, my mindset about it is that it's this, you know, sacred bond between two individuals who love each other and want to spend their lives together. And that's that's the beauty of it. That's where it starts. But when I look at it on TV in the last 20 years, what I see is this, it's something like, you know, you would read in an economic analysis, uh, which is sort of like this commodification of marriage. I mean, everything that I've noticed about it is bride as consumer and basically building this moment around, like you say, this is the most significant thing that could happen to a woman. And while I think it is a beautiful event, and I think it is a significant event, but it seems to be the way it's being sold, and that's yeah. what I would use the term yeah. sold, yeah, is that it's the yeah. only event that matters. It's the only event, and the one thing to which <clears throat> This is it. This is your moment, queen for a day, as Vicky said earlier. Yeah. Well, I- I asked at the beginning of my opening paragraph in the article, you know, uh, how can something already functioning as an obsolete form have such a strong hold on even the most radical among us? 
The answer, I believe, lies in the history of marriage as part of the transition that occurred in ancient times from female-centered societies, matriarchy, to male-dominant ones, patriarchy, wherein the priestess became the bride. Right. That, that's what was so fascinating about your article. Suddenly, because I had, had always, I think, you know, it's, it's pulling me back around to what the first films I had when I read it the first time, which was, what is this mania that happens about brides? Like, I, it didn't make any sense to me. As much as I like the idea of marriage, the idea that someone would be so literally psychotic almost about being a bride was really weird to me. But when you connected it to being a priestess, that kind of passion and mania suddenly makes sense. So maybe could we talk about what are the trappings of the priestess that were brought into the marriage ritual for the bride and how did that come about in in olden days, as they, as they yeah, say. In the really, really olden days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, my my big interest in all of this has always I, – I love – Maria Gimbutas's work, as you know, and all the work on old Europe and a lot of the uh, a lot of the Eastern European countries, and just and the Mary Kelly's work showing the long connection, the like nine thousand years of symbolism that comes from the early Neolithic in Europe, uh, all the way up to the present day, and tea towels and uh, you know. Uh, traditional dress worn for festivals and things like that. But my my specific interest for a long, long time, uh, maybe because I was a healer and a, a kind of visionary in my early life, um, I'm interested in how the women were in the spiritual leadership, the religious leadership in particular. So the priestess right. and... Uh, and I think that female shamanism, I've written about ancient female shamanism uh, as a collective function of the group of women, starting way back when we first evolved, you know, and became human at all. I, I believe that we, we priestesses, that the women did rituals around the synchronization of their menstrual cycle with the moon. And so the, the social context in which the community got together and did uh, rituals was the new moon and the full moon and the bleeding of the women together at the full moon and the, <clears throat> and the ovulation and then the birthing. You know, everything would have been a collective, par- a, a collective process because there weren't electric lights and you know, even nowadays, if you're in a dormitory long enough with other women, you'll you'll cycle together. Right. Um, so, so that's always been very interesting and very core for me that we were human uh, in a matriarchal way, and that that structure, that matriarchal context, lasted for a long, long time, like two hundred thousand years, and it was only with the invasions we've talked about, the Indo-European invasions and the beginnings of, of uh, patriarchal war and colonization and so on, that, uh, that that changed. And it changed slowly. You know, it was a death that didn't want to die. So I, I think that the whole change, as, I, as we've talked about, about what I call Amazons from the third millennium all the way down to the, <clears throat> to the first the end of the first millennium, that that 3,000 years was a period of resistance. Yes. And yes. Of, of women fighting back and of matriarchal cultures really doing everything they could, fleeing and finding refuge in mountains and caves and islands and places that were hard of access uh, in order to keep their stuff, you know, to keep their values, to keep their gold priestess diadems and things like that. So, so the paraphernalia that I connect with, uh, with this long lineage, you might say, of, of shaman priestesses, shaman women, comes uh, primarily from the work of Janine Davis Kimball that we just talked about last time. Right. Um, she kind of uh, codified the burials of Amazons that she was unearthing with the Russian uh, archaeologist that she worked with. And, uh, and, 
And there was even one time, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but in general, the, the graves she was opening um, in, from the 5th century B.C., um, they, they, they contained women who were buried in the center. We, we've talked about this before. Yeah, they were buried yeah. in the center of the Kurgans. They were buried with a, a kind of assemblage of, of things, including uh, portable altars, shells, always the shells, mm-hmm. always the mirror. Mirror, yeah, yeah. You know, even at Shadalhuyuk in the 7th millennium BCE, uh, there were women buried, the old women, buried with uh, obsidian mirrors. Yeah. It's, it's very meaningful. And the mirror comes all the way down and, and uh, is still used by Etruscan priestesses, you know, around the, the turn of the millennium. So those, uh, those accoutrements of the priestess were, were really passed on. And, uh, and so the thing that I got interested in in this article isn't so much which things, uh, but really the whole uh, concept of intermarriage, as they like to call it, as this brilliant colonizing strategy. Yeah. And it, it starts uh, collectively when the, when the first uh, waves of uh, of Indo-Europeans come in, maybe I'll maybe I'll name those like Maria Gimbutas did, just to help people get a sense of timing. Um, while, you're, okay, while, you're, just... while you're looking for that, let me just, uh, if you wouldn't mind, let me just poke a, an idea in here, which is that um, mm-hmm. in an egalitarian society, which we have said that these matriarchies were, um, yes. <clears throat> the sort of the only, I, I guess, the only people that you could pick out as being sort of like in a different class uh, might be the priestesses. And so, when these uh-huh. when these invading uh, hierarchical patriarchal groups came in, and they wanted to find a way to sort of um, take over the the goods and the um and the society that they were invading they would marry their chief to the equivalent in the matriarchal society and the only equivalent that they could find would be the priestess of course they're like well yeah. you you look like you're in charge so yeah. you're the one that's going to marry our chief and and that that allows the patriarchal society to sort of take authority into themselves over the matriarchal society. Yes, and I think that what you're describing is the strategy used <clears throat> for those thousands of years, exactly. Yeah. Um, C- Vicki, can I ask you too about that? Because that particular strategy stands out. We've talked about it. We've touched on it in different times about these particular patterns. We see it in the DNA. But in your essay, you point out that we're not just talking, you said set forth that we're not just talking about uh, a European uh, issue, which I mentioned that's that you talk about happened throughout Afro-Eurasia. And I'm wondering, what do we know about cultures outside of Europe with a similar pattern? Because the reason I ask is it's pretty clear, at least uh, from among the three of us and when we talk about it, the kinds of patterns that occurred, the thing that Dawn just described. Do we? What do you know of for cultures, let's say, in Asia or in Africa, if there were similar occurrences of this kind of like a patriarchal over, uh, patriarchy overtaking these matriarchal practices? Or is this something that's very localized? No, it's not localized at all. It's almost anywhere where there was the rise of the state. So not so much in Africa, not that it didn't happen, but that uh, there's been less archaeology done there. And, um, and probably it didn't happen as much. But certainly in China, that was the story. By the time of the, you know, by the time of this, the common era, they were, they were doing foot binding, for Christ's sake. You know, it's just really, it's unbelievable how far the misogyny went. Once what was the matriarchal structure there beforehand? What did they overtake is really what I'm kind of well, all the early Neolithic sites are, were matriarchal. And the nice thing for some of us who've been researching for as long as I have is that although you probably won't find it anymore, 
the earlier big fat archaeology books, you know, the coffee table books with, with all the beautiful pictures of, and all the archaeological sites and the chronologies and all that, they absolutely called it matriarchy. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So it was not hidden. That's, I say that often about American and British archaeology. You know, it's really, it has this overlay <clears throat> that you can't trust. Um, because it has a story it's trying to uphold. And mm-hmm. in Chinese archaeology, that was not true at all. The whole time I was in my early two decades, I'd say, of doing research, all the work coming out of China uh, was, uh, you know, admitted. I mean, it wasn't even like an argument. They didn't even have a problem with it. They just said that was the matriarchal period. And that's no, not- before the Shang dynasty. So, uh, you know, it's once it's once it's uh, once it's overcome or conquered uh, in whatever way in each culture in each state, um, it's it's always more or less the same. This is what this is basically what uh, Mary Daly wrote about mm. her brilliant philosophical work. In, in the 20th century called Gyne Ecology. The title was Gyne slash Ecology. And she did a worldwide uh, investigation um, into the cultures and, and the, what she called the Sado rituals of patriarchy in each of five states, five, uh, five cultures. Uh, she did <clears throat> she did China foot binding. She did India sati where they burned widows yeah. uh, on the fire, the pier of the um, husband. Um, she did uh, genital mutilation. FGM, yeah. She did uh, uh, one more thing. Uh, why can't I think of it? Uh, the last thing was she did American gynecology, Western gynecology. Wow. And she, she compared cross-culturally these atrocities that were done to women and the, all the intellectual writing that was done by all these men in these different cultures over the centuries, you know, justifying and kind of glamorizing these different hideous practices. Mm. And so, I, do you know about the work of Jessica Pinn? No. She is, um, she's dealing, speaking of American gynecological practices, she's trying, um, she's trying to get the medical textbooks updated because predominantly in um, American medical textbooks today, they do not show the nerves leading to the clitoris. Oh, how and, interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. And urologists, when they operate. Oh, no. Yes. Um, are, not, are not fully educated as to how not to cut the nerves to a woman's clitoris. Wow. And, you know, ruin her sexual pleasure for the rest of her life. And, yeah. um, and she is just, and uh, she is facing incredible pushback from the medical establishment. Really, after yes. all time? Oh my god! Yes, yes. Even oh. now, even now, they're basically saying, you know, what do you know? You're a woman. Wow. No, I've never heard her of her work, and thank you. I'll check yeah. it. Absolutely. Um, and you know that was happening in the seventies. I mean, who was the woman? The whole there was so much. Uh, attention to the clitoris and the clitoral orgasm and the vaginal orgasm and the, you know, and Freud's, yeah, Freud's whole assertion that uh, the clitoral orgasm was immature and the vaginal orgasm was mature. It's just that most women couldn't have them. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's because women clearly weren't mature enough. God. Okay. Let's, uh, <laughs> anyway, let's we di- but we digress. <laughs> so, uh, Sean, in terms of your question, I do like to go all the way back to the Indo-Europeans again and again because 
the more that unfolds in regard to the DNA studies and so on, the more we actually know about the waves, uh, is it, 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 then the more we know about the very beginnings, as far as I'm concerned, of, uh, of organized warfare and this organized, organized patriarchal marriage as a colonizing process. It was so early in old Europe. And yes, it happened in many, many other places. Like you could take this as a research question and go to almost any, uh, any um, evolved culture, you know, developed culture in the world, and you could find the transition. You could find this kind of transitional activity. But the old European was the biggest and lasted the longest, the matriarchy, and uh, and the the overthrowing of it was the most intense. There's never been uh, another um, event in the DNA record as strong as the one in which the Indo-European male males um, completely eliminated the farmer men, the male the male agriculturalists. From, I think that's significant. Yes, it's so significant. There's never Absolutely. anything else like it. And then the Indo-Europeans spread out from there all over Eurasia, and you can find them again and again having this effect. And that's what some of my research in this article was about. Some of the later, uh, you know, displays of the same thing. But uh, Maria Gimbutas told us. Uh, Way back when, she talked about the first wave coming in, you know, in 4500, they came down from, uh, from, around, from north of the Black Sea and, and made forays into the, the Danube culture, especially near the Black Sea. And when they did that, you could, you could say they had a strategy, but I think it kind of predates a strategy. I think they saw the gold. I yeah. think it was just a, a greed thing, and that the gold was uh, very was used in a very sacred way. You know, it was hammered gold. They hadn't quite started. They didn't smelt it until probably the the fifth millennium. But uh, but there was gold, and the priestesses wore it, and I'm sure they wore it as a you know for the vibration and for the uh, whatever kind of. Um, sacred energy was was coming off of it but anyway we'll leave that um well i just i just want to jump in with one thing there too about this particular wave this clash of the patriarchy and matriarchy in old europe we do focus on it a lot on the podcast and i think we're as you point out one of the significant reasons to do so is because well first of all we are speaking from the west so it's there are Often in today's world, people will argue that we speaking about other cultures is cultural appropriation or intrusion. This is the West. We live in the West. This is Western culture. So we can speak on it with a little more uh, authority and clarity and, and, and allowance, I guess maybe is the better way to put it. So that's number one. But number two, I think what you pointed out was really important. And I, I see it. I'm saying to you, I see it in today's world and in, in the media and the entertainment it's this extent to which it occurred. That rupture yeah. is so explosive. Yeah. And so and and so after a point, like you said, and initially it didn't seem like a strategy, but it was clearly a strategy, at least in my opinion, after a certain point. There are too many historical, genetic, archaeological factors that point to it being a strategy. Absolutely. So there's a strategy to it. And that strategy is a strategy of conquest and a birth of what we look at as colonization. And that colonization, as I was saying, maybe before we started talking on the podcast, it's less acceptable, quote unquote, to do now in a violent way, but it is still occurring in a propagandistic way, mm. in a way in which we are constantly being given images and information to underscore the notion of uh, this particular patriarchal power, like I call it patriarchal Aikido. It worked its way in somehow to be at that foundation. So that's why I think this discussion is important, because we're, we're showing that this is there, this particular kind of colonization, this rupture, it's there. And it's so extensive 
And as you say, Vicky, because the old Europe matriarchy was so vast and had been around so long that we can really see it in stark relief. But also because the West has had that kind of primacy for the last 100 to 200 years, it affects the whole planet. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about the kinds of beliefs that are spread by our culture to the rest of the world. And so the things you see perhaps in India changing, I'm sure would be affected by the extent to which the American media shows marriage being this thing that, you know, uh, people, successful cultures do in this particular way. Yes, exactly. So anyway, the that's people who my wrote, the, people, the people writing about this phenomenon and in this news article I, re- I read, uh, they link it to social media. They absolutely uh, give social media as the cause of what's mm-hmm. happening. And let's not forget that before the Americans ever stretched their tendrils, you know, across the globe, that um, the Indian culture was uh, completely remade by British occupation. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so that, and that also, same ethos is there. Just sorry, Vicky. Just to push back a little bit. Sean, um, mm-hmm. the violence against women, you know, has has gotten not not less terrible, but much worse over time. Now, oh, I don't, I don't mean it's not not that. I just, I meant more about militarily. I mean, yes, nation uh-huh, violence, uh-huh. not 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 women violence. That although, certainly is still there. Although in any uh, in any modern war, uh, women are raped as a matter of course. And, and as, uh, a, as a strategy, as a strategy, mm-hmm. and often impregnated as part of that strategy, to break the culture, to break the language, to break the solidarity. So you know, and I just what did I read? I just read uh, more than one in three women in the U.S. will be uh, harmed violently by a man, and one in four men. It's mm. really gotten off the chart. And and this is recent. That's 220, 2020. Wow. Um, the, the, the level the domestic, we see that. Domestic violence has increased globally 25 to 33%. Just recently, you know, just in the last decade. So, um, and, you know, even in the early 2000s, Amnesty Inter- International had reported that uh, a woman was most unsafe, other than war. Women are most unsafe. Guess where? In their in, homes. in their own homes. Yeah, in their own homes. They live with the enemy. That's the thing that feminists were so keen on talking about in the seventies. Is what do we do? You know, we don't. It's not like we're two different cultures that live next to each other. You know, we're we're a heterosexual culture, and women live with men. Women love men, and live with them. And the men love the women, and they kill them. So it's a real problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on, be, on behalf of the men, yeah, I, I agree. It is an absolute problem. I think one thing that could be done. I mean, I think the the idea of being aware of the colonization aspect. And and people are going to hear this, and I know it's going to sound like a bunch of academic mumbo-jumbo, but if, to put it in very plain spoken language, it's if you are, if you can think of it, we, we, we sometimes find it easier to think of things in terms of race than in terms of gender. We're more comfortable seeing the the kind of oppression that could occur in that way. So maybe the way to think of it is, is if people can think of that, if you live in a culture and you're a minority with a majority culture, you sometimes are Images are created such that it develops a sense of inferiority, right? And so the same thing can happen with gender. So when we're talking about colonization, we're talking about a similar sort of thing. So it's important for both the colonized and the colonizer to be aware of it. And so maybe that's the issue for men. And the reason for talking about it is that uh, archaeology and uh, human evolution experts and so on, people, people assume, generally speaking, that the nuclear family and the and marriage have always existed in human culture and that uh we're we're stuck with it you know it's the way it is and so but but we're not and it's not the way it always was it's quite recent and that's what quite i tried recent. to prove yeah. in my article you know so like for instance gimbutas said 
she showed us in, uh, I think it was in The Civilization of the Goddess, she talked about the dislocations of people that followed the first wave, uh, where it was just some chieftains that basically came in. And and, uh, here's what they did, you know, the Tiza culture, where small groups of rich burials contain proto-Europoid males, but the majority of the graves are of Mediterranean type with their old European features. So these men in the big kurgans the, come in and they, uh, they, t- they take a woman and, uh, and they're buried with her. And, and uh, the, in the second wave, which was a, a little later in the fourth millennium, um, the, she says the newly formed mixed-raced hybrid cultures buried their males at the center with women and children around the edges in at least in one double burial of a quote royal couple the woman wears an exquisite head cover and nearby in an oven-shaped grave five skeletons of children lie in a circle three newborns and two toddlers all shown by bone analysis to be the children of the buried chieftain and so we're talking about uh, a shift. We're talking about that shift, but it's not so codified as it would someday be in terms of each nuclear family and uh, a husband and a wife. But that's what it was the elites in the beginning, you know, is how the archaeologists would see it. Right. Uh, and then finally, the third wave, that terrible wave, the massive infiltration, she calls it, that caused drastic changes in the ethnic configuration of Europe. Now, this is before we had the DNA information that she said that. She just named it. Right, right. And the DNA has only recently backed it up and proved her correct. Exactly. Like 25 years later. Right. Uh, um, And then she talks about these hybrid cultures, you know, displacing other cultures. And then she said... The, they they didn't have to be massive in numbers and didn't eradicate the local inhabitants. They came in small migrating bands and established themselves forcefully as a small ruling elite. Um, and and under their influence, Neolithic women's influence collapsed entirely, and they became private property in the new trading and raiding culture. Mm. And then, he, and then she talks about the earliest written sources, the Iliad and the Rig Veda. So both the uh, both Homer and the uh, the Vedas speak of how a bride or weapons are obtained in exchange for cattle. So, and then she also described how the deities became male. They had always been female, and they became male. And the female goddesses that were left were not creatrixes anymore but were simply brides or wives of right. deities. So right. here's the template. Yeah, I was going to yeah. I was going to point out how this exact process was mirrored in the spiritual beliefs that, you know, it started out with a female pre- preeminent female creatrix who was the goddess. Yeah, and parthenogenic. Then, <laughs> yes, parthenogenic and then she got a consort you know, who was male, who started to sort of take on some of her duties and her attention. And suddenly stories were about their romance. Yes, but that was part of the rise of the state. You Mm -hmm. see that in Sumer and Mesopotamia and in the cuneiform uh, tablets. You know, she takes, uh, Inanna takes on Demuzi. Right. and so on. And right. that's that's because now we're in a patriarchal state but we still have a goddess. Right, right. And then of course they become the consort is raised to the level of husband and they become husband and wife and equal in power and influence. And then as we see the patriarchy continuing to, you know, rule the state, it yeah. becomes she becomes his bride, his consort and he takes over all of the power and authority that she used to hold. But the priestesses, you know, that was like the last holdout of female power. 
Yes. So the fact that, you know, the brides come from this sort of echo the priestess tradition is is a further devolution yeah. of the power of women. Very well said. <laughs> and that's what I finally went <laughs> That's what I finally went to uh, with the the later, you know, the the what we call the traditional Amazon period around the fifth, the five hundred, uh, five or six hundred BCE. In that's much later than the beginning of it all. But right. at that point, there are still these shaman priestesses that I tracked all the way across Central Asia to uh, the Tarim Basin and to Tibet, you know, because they were still holding the religious leadership, even though the different chieftains were rising and falling and so on. Um, and the ones that I that really uh, helped me, the evidence that really helped me was the burials of shaman women on the right bank of the Dnieper River. So mm. north of the Black Sea, one of the five uh, D, Don, Danu <laughs> rivers right. pouring into the Black Sea. Um, a few unusual graves containing women stand out conspicuously because of portable stone altars, dishes, slabs, pieces of paint and chalk, seals, various amulets, pieces of armament, and bridles placed as grave offerings. Mm -hmm. And so the researchers believed that these graves belonged to priestesses who belonged to what they call the highest stratum of horsemen. <coughs> and the and they even think that the Dnieper was probably the religious center for the Scythian tribes mm. because, uh, because of these important female graves. But what I took from it is, okay, here it is. This is the end of the line. Here are the here are the unmarried off shaman priestesses, the high priestesses of these cultures. And um, and it won't be long before you see them buried with male chieftains and no longer uh, having their own autonomy. Right, right. The, the Indian culture apparently used intermarriage between invading chiefs and indigenous priestesses as an explicit colonizing strategy. And the, the research they've done on uh, the forest culture, the Tori, you know, like Taurus, uh, mm -hmm. they took the local population as slaves, and then uh, they, they had lots of evidence showing mixed Scythian uh, um, marriages with these forest women. Hmm. It's this, it's that's, again, to not to put too fine a point on it, but that aspect of it, there's two things that stand out for me. Again, it's one, I, I, the pattern continues. The pattern continues in so many different ways in the way we look at things in Western culture, the way it's created. That pattern is disruptive and that pattern is destructive, particularly to all the cultures that it encounters, even to this day. But the other aspect of it that is also that really stands out to me and, is, and has always stood out to me since we started these discussions is the the amnesia of it. it it's the mm. the cultural amnesia of of women's power of the power that women had, particularly when we talk about old Europe. I, I always liken it to it's sort of like a powerful woman takes on a boyfriend and pays his way through med school, and then strains her accounts. He becomes a surgeon drops her, and then she gets amnesia and forgets she was the reason he became the thing he became. And it's sort of like that's that's kind of what it seems like when we look at this progress of culture. You have this foundation of peaceful, egalitarian nature in old Europe, and then you have this rupture, which both colonizes that culture and takes from it some of its best aspects and calls it its own yeah. and uses it for its and own I would, I would... I would adjust that story you just told a little bit, Sean, which is to say, mm -hmm. oh, she never forgets, but he forgets. Ah, <laughs> okay. But she never forgets. She just can't do anything about it anymore. Do you remember the movie, the recent movie uh, with Glenn Close called The Wife? No. It was a true story of a, 
uh, a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Oh, yes, yes. It was probably a literary prize that the man won after, after decades of the wife writing the books in his name. Right, yeah. It, it wow. was chilling. And it's true. And so anyway, yes, it goes on. <laughs> no, that's but that's a great, that's a perfect metaphor. I mean, yeah. I, I'll have to look that up because I have not heard that. But it's a well, great, it's also uh, there was also a recent movie about um, a French writer, a female writer who um, married a man, and he basically, you know, locked her in her room and and made her write, and then published the books under his own name. Wow. Yeah. Well, Colette uh, wrote her own books, but only after her. Uh, This I learned from a movie about her. It's called Colette, but it's not about her. It's about her marriage. And she doesn't write any of her books until she's out of that marriage. Mm. Um, I want to to build on Sean's uh, amnesia uh, idea uh, and say that, uh, you know, this has been happening in America within the last century, because um, I'm thinking specifically of the Navajo people, but I'm certain there are Native American tribes other than the Navajos that also had this happen to them. But Navajo tradition was that the land was held in trust by the women of the tribe. Uh And when they put them on a reservation, they, they split the land into individual family units of land and put the man in charge of that property. Wow. So they deliberately broke apart that matriarchal practice and created a patriarchal structure instead. Well, that's what always happens. That's an interesting, but that's an interesting difference though, too, Dawn. That's one where another culture takes apart the matriarchy. So, I mean, because it's interesting because what we've been talking about has been the culture that invades, colonizes, and disrupts the matriarchy and becomes a new culture. Whereas that's an example of an external culture that's not intermingling with the Navajo, but is actually just reconfiguring Navajo culture. That's almost another layer of it, right? That's almost a different layer of it, which is interesting. But, you know, we were the invaders, so... Yeah. Well, no, yeah, no, what I mean though is normally it will normal the normal pattern would be if we the called the the Anglo-American invaders then took over Navajo culture itself. Well, you, we you also, see these things they're making? Yeah, I and, do. And but entered we also, into it and, and blended. And, and right. blended, yeah. But you know, we did it in a different way. We took their children away from them and sent them to American schools where they were inculcated. Yeah. Yeah. Where they were inculcated with American culture with the invaders culture. So it is a slightly different way, a different strategy, but it is trying to accomplish, I think the same end. Yeah. I I might, I might want to push back a little bit. Now, the reason, the reason I am is because I think it's what's significant, at least to me, what I look at significantly about this discussion is the fact that patriarchal cultures come in and consume the culture it takes right it it erases the like as, as vicky talked about erases the male line entirely mm-hmm. replaces it and subs, you know consumes whatever is there takes on the female line and becomes its own its way of conquest is to destroy what the male line is and take on the female well line. that's one way yeah that's one way but that has been the most significant way that we've seen through through dna and through genes through the genetics that we've seen. The colonialism we see later, like with England, is like what you're describing, Don, with the Navajo, which is where it's kind of like just crashing other cultures and reconfiguring and destroying what they had as part of their history. So it's it's two different methods, but one but it's just there's a it's a distinction I think is important just because there is something that is there, there's something. There was something about the, the difference between the two that seems to be, to me, significant in terms of what it's trying to accomplish, or or the insidiousness of it. Mm, so anyway, mm. that's my that's my opinion. It's more insidious when it takes into a culture and erases an entire group of its DNA, 
yeah. as opposed to when it comes to a culture and it reconfigures it. But leaves really, it separate but leaves it. as exactly. opposed to consuming it. Yeah. Didn't, yes. Didn't European invaders wipe out about 90% of the Native Americans? Well, all of them, not just the men. They, they wiped out probably 90% of Native American population through disease. Yes. Well, and through through everything else, massacre. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting for our discussion of priestess to bride, that kind of colonization is much more about the union. And it's a, it's a sexual aspect, too. It's about that right. kind of union. So that's why I was trying to draw the distinction, because I think that's where it becomes really insidious. And as Vicky points out, sleeping with the enemy. Right. Literally is in that case. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. 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 And so the last part of my uh, essay was about the Amazons as no husband ones <coughs> and how important that was. Uh, and my, my theory, my idea about it is that uh, tribes like the Scythians who were uh, led by chieftains, um, came in, came into the area around the Black Sea. They came. They, it's believed they came from the east, although they seem to be uh, also related by millennia to um, to a people around, uh, in that area that I can't remember the name of. But anyway, one. It's not the Yamnaya, but it's one of those uh, groups in the steppes. Anyway. Um, they the they used to think all the scholars used to think that Amazon meant without a breast, right. and Janine uh, understood uh, that the Proto Indo European word for Amazon meant no husband one. That these were these were not all female tribes living on their own. These were cultures without husbands. These were matriarchal cultures. This is my opinion, that these were matriarchal cultures, the Sarumatians and cultures like that in, around the, the 500 time uh, BCE. Um, and that somebody like the Scythians would come in and observe them and notice that they, had, they didn't have marriage and you know they're like a remnant of an ancient matriarchal culture that wouldn't have had technical marriage and uh, and that they would have called them the no husband ones like that would have been the distinctive quality that they noticed that- the distinctive feature that the women of the culture are not beholden to a man in marriage right and that there's some other social organizational principle at work right um, so I think that's that really explains why there are so many Amazons, but no evidence of all female tribes that killed their baby boys. You know, right. like that's just a mythology. But the fact of the Amazons or the cultures that did not capitulate to patriarchal marriage, um, that's really important. And they're the ones with the priestesses, with the carved spoons and mirrors and portable stone altars, you know, for a long, long time, really, until, until I, think, uh, I think the last research I read was around the fourth century of the Common Era, when the Allens kind of took over that area and uh, assimilated the Sarmatians, who were the ones that came after the Sarmatians. Right. So there's so much more that we could that we could right. talk about, but I I really like to uh, have people think about what it would mean to uh, to be a tribe of like they describe the Moso people in China as uh, people without husbands or fathers, not meaning that they don't have men and they don't have sex, but meaning that they don't institutionalize the social role of either husband or father. The brother-sister contract is very strong, and the brothers operate as the social fathers, if that makes sense. Um, You know, so it's a way of trying to sort of see into and understand matriarchal social structure 
the fact that they that they could they could not have marriage, but they could still have uh, really happy sex lives, and you know, even pair bond if they wanted, and so on. And a, and a functioning society, even without these, you know, what we regard as almost foundational principles. Yes, and the and the nuclear family is the economic unit of great yes. importance in Western culture. Right. You know, uh, capitalism can't exist without the nuclear family. So uh, it's really a very important thing for people to think about and imagine, you know, other possibilities. It's probably a great place for us to stop. I think that's an amazing, amazing point and amazing journey. Um, I don't know, Dawn, do you have any anything you want to? No, I think that's that's terrific. Yeah. Well, I want to, as always, thank. Vicki Noble for her insight. Thank you, Vicki. You're so welcome. Thanks for uh, humoring me, letting me rant. Oh, my no, God. Not no, not at all. It's brilliant. No. It's brilliant. Vicki, we look forward to this. So <laughs> thank you very much. And Dawn, thank you for coming off the injured reserve list, coming out of the locker room <laughs> to the cheers of the crowd, I say as a football fan. Uh, thank you, Dawn. <laughs> And thank you, Sean, for, as always, being our man, Fester, and, uh, okay. and our backbone. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yeah. This has been the 34 Sources Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been discussing Priestess to Bride. Thank you all for listening. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Blessed be. <laughs>